Welcome to Practical Christian Living. When things are really painful, God says, you will be comforted. What a great promise to know that there won't always be this pain. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. God has promised His comfort will come to those who are hurting the most, those who are mourning. Just as we mourn the loss of someone we love, James calls us to mourn sin in our lives and temptation to turn from the things of this world. When we humble ourselves and realize our need to be cleansed, oh, God will cleanse us and do so much more, He will lift us up. Here's part two of our study out of James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Please stay with us. Here's Robert Furrow. How do we fight against the devil? How do I have spiritual warfare? The church that I attended, that I met Lisa in, they would do spiritual warfare by saying the word rad, rad, rad over and over again. Sometimes to music. They'd be playing the music and then everybody in the room would go rad, 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 rad. I don't know why that was spiritual warfare. Just a whole room going rad, 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 rad. I don't know that that was spiritual warfare. But when you resist the devil, when you're tempted and you say no and he flees from you, that's spiritual warfare. I think that if Satan is effective in his temptation, then why not continue to tempt you? But if it's ineffective, he'll flee from you like he did with Jesus. When he couldn't get Jesus to fall and Jesus said, leave me, the Bible says Satan left for a more opportune time. So we must always stay on our guard. If Satan tempts us and we resist it, he'll come back at us another way. We need to resist him again, but therefore submit to God. It also tells us that in this whole scenario of being friends with the world, and uh, becoming enemies of God and causing God this jealousy that Satan is involved in it, that spiritual warfare is involved in it, that Satan wants you worldly. He wants you to care more about the things of this world than you care about the things of God. So you resist the devil and he will flee from you and then draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I don't know that there is a greater promise in all of the pages of Scripture than that promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. One of the things that Billy Graham used to say, every crusade that I ever listened to him preach, he said this at one point or another, call out to God and he will answer you, the Bible says, he would say. Call out to God and he will answer you. That's a great promise, isn't it? But this promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You say, I want to know God. I want to know him more. I want to know him better. I want to have a relationship with him. What do I do? You draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. And you say, well, how do I draw near to him? Well, I'm glad you asked because the rest of the passage tells us how to do it. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say draw near to God because then we might think, well, what it means is I need to fast more. Or I need to pray more. Or I need to go to church more. I need to become more religious. I need to dress more religious. I need to smell religious. I need to walk religious. And we can easily become confused. We can think those are things that bring us to God. When prayer isn't to make you more spiritual, but prayer does make you more spiritual. Reading the Bible 
isn't so that you can have a greater standing in front of God, but the more you read the Bible, the more you learn what it really means to draw close to God. What, what reading the Bible and praying should do is take away spiritual pride. Often what it does do is increase someone's spiritual pride. How come people don't pray as much as I do? How come people don't read their Bible as much as I do? Well, look at these people. They're so far from God. I'm so close to God. And God now says to you, prideful, religious, prideful person, I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to take you out because I am now against you. I don't want God against me. And so he now gives the rest of these commandments which tell us how to draw near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? And this again is to the church. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the, the first problem for those in Reformed theology. Sinners. How could he say to Christians, sinners? You know why? Because some Christians have unconfessed, unrepented sin in their lives. Unconfessed, unrepented, harbored sin in their lives. What do I mean by harbored? It means that you've got it tied up to the dock. You're not always on that boat, but it's there and you can climb on it when you want to. Confessed and repented sin, when the ropes have been cut from that dock, is someone who says, Lord, I want to give you what's right. I want to give you purity. I want to give you righteousness. I struggle. The Bible says God knows our weaknesses. And out of our weaknesses, we can be strong. He knows that we are made out of dust. He knows our humanness. He knows our passions. But we can cleanse our hands as sinners. And we can purify our hearts. And how is it that we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts? Well, we cleanse our hands by getting rid of the things that we need to get rid of. You're struggling with getting drunk? Then go pour out your alcohol. When I was a youth pastor, one of the kids in the youth group found his dad's pornography. And his dad attended the church. The kid was struck, you know, was devastated by what he found and saw he was probably 13 years old at the time, 12, 13 years old. So I called the dad in. And sat down and he said, yeah, it's mine. And I said, okay, well, you know, what are you going to do? I'm the youth pastor at Calvary and Albuquerque. And he said, well, I, you know, I, I have a peel box and I get the pornography sent there and I get it so my wife doesn't know where it's at. I said, well, you need to get rid of the peel box. You need to do whatever you got to do to cancel Playboy to come to your, your peel box. And he said, but they won't give me a refund. Why, why are we thinking about a refund at all? You ought to pay them money to take it back. How much do I have to pay you so you don't send these things where I can get them anymore? All of a sudden, there was a problem in his mind where there wasn't a problem. How do you cleanse your hands? You cancel it. You get rid of the P.O. box. You, you get rid of the cable TV. You set up accountability for the computers. You do whatever you have to do. That's how you cleanse your hands. It is the fruits of repentance. It's saying, I want to make sure that I get these things taken care of in my life because I don't want to do this. And you purify your heart. Purifying your heart is even easier than that. Purifying your heart is simply saying, Lord, cleanse me. 
forgive me. I want to be right with you. I don't want to do these things. Even though at times I want to do these things, I don't want to do these things. You guys ever have those kind of prayers with God? Where you're just being honest with God? You're just trying to deal with your sin. God, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, God, I did want to do it when I did it, but I don't want to do it now. Because we are double-minded. We are sinners. We do at times want to serve God, and then we do at times want to serve the world. So get things right between you and God. Keep short accounts between you and God. When you have a wrong thought, when you have something, that's, then take care of it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He goes on to say, lament and mourn and weep. James, uh, the book of James follows the Beatitudes a lot. And Jesus said the second of the Beatitudes was blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I, uh, I know more about that Beatitude now than I ever thought that I would. We're coming up on the anniversary of Lisa going to be with the Lord. And the last couple of months been a little bit of a reprieve and all of a sudden things are really hard again coming up on, on the anniversary. And I look at that verse now in a new way. When things are really painful, God says, you will be comforted. What a great promise to know that there won't always be this pain. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. But also in the way of sin, I believe that we need to mourn not only because we mourn from things that have happened to us, but we need to mourn because this world is a dark, desperate world. It's full of sin. It's full of wickedness. We need to mourn over it. And we need to mourn over our condition. That is that at times we love those things that are in the world. We are weak. And so we mourn over our condition. And God says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Two things, he who sows in tears, the Old Testament says, will rejoice bringing in the sheaves. That's the time of harvest. If you will cry and weep over the lost that you know, you will rejoice during the days of harvest. And when you weep over your own sin, you will be comforted because your sin will be forgiven. I liken when we sin to a wound, to cutting ourselves in our spirits. And it's painful, and we, we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. And God, he anoints us with a forgiving salve. They, they use salve in their days to heal things. They put the salve on, and, and it would cover it up, cover up a, you know, something that was an open wound, get to keep the air out of it, and help it to heal. And God heals us spiritually after we sin and we're in pain. And so we lament, we mourn, and we weep. Turn with me from here to, to Revelation chapter 3. I, I want to read you one of the letters to one of the churches. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven different churches. They were seven churches that existed in those days. They also, I believe, represent seven different times of church history. 
It's interesting when you take these seven churches and you lay them over church history, they fit like a perfect stencil on top of it. There are two churches for the last days. There is a lukewarm church and there is a faithful church. The faithful church is Philadelphia. I've never been in a church that has not said that they are Philadelphia, including us. We're Philadelphia, I believe. I, when you read the letter to the church of Philadelphia, brotherly love, we're, we're supposed to have love in our midst. When you read the letter to them, he says, you have a little strength. And I, I wish that the Lord had said, you have great strength. But he says, you have a little strength. And hang on to things and I'll rescue you out of the day of trouble that's coming upon this earth. That's Revelation 3.10, if you want to look it up. A promise that God will keep them from the hour of trial that's coming upon this earth. But there's another church that's a last day's church. And that's the lukewarm church. And that's the church of Laodicea. We pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 3. I want to try to read this with very little commentary. I'll comment on it a little bit. But we'll kind of let it stand for itself for the most part. So verse 14 of chapter 3, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God wants us to be sold out, cold or hot. Give everything or, or, or live in the world with everything. Don't play the game. The person that plays the game might as well be ice cold for Jesus. We want to be on fire for him. We want to live for him with everything we have. He says, because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That is this church in their condition. They think they're okay. They think they're wealthy. They think they have everything. But in reality, they are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. That is what should produce the tears in us. Lord, help me. I'm worldly. Help me, I'm drawn to the things of the world. Help me because I don't want to be that person that's fond of the world. And so he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed even to this lukewarm church, he says, I don't want the shame of your nakedness being revealed. If th this is a spiritual nakedness. This is our sin. The Bible says that which is done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. That ought to frighten every one of us. But the shame of our nakedness will not be revealed. If we do what's right, God will cover our sins by the suffering of Jesus upon the cross. He goes on to say, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. See, the, the church of Laodicea is his church. They're just this lukewarm people. 
And what God is saying to the church of Laodicea is this. You're lukewarm, you're in the middle, but I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm either going to push you out to the cold side or I'm going to push you out to the hot side. But I'm going to put pressure on you. The most miserable Christian is the lukewarm Christian. Because he wants the world, but doesn't have enough of it. And he wants God, but isn't close enough. And God says, try to stand on that fence and I will knock you off. J. Vernon McGee's analogy is funny. He said, it's like a, being, a, being a lukewarm Christian is like putting your foot on a bus and a foot on the curb and saying to the driver, drive on. And then he would say, you end up in the gutter in his southern drawl, right? Can you hear him? May I say to you, my friends, you'll end up in the gutter. That's what he would say. That's what God wants to do. Knock you one way or another. He's not going to let you remain in the middle. And I, for one, because I know my heart, because I know myself, I'm glad God doesn't let me stay in the middle. Because the reality is, I would stay in the middle. I would move to the middle where I can have some of the world and have some of Christ and, and stay there. And God says, no, I, I won't do that. I won't let you stay there. And so he says, therefore, be zealous and repent. And then verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Again, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. It's his idea. God draws and you open it up and let him in. Then when you get in, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And when you go, oh, what? I don't know. But remember that verse 20 is to the church. This isn't to non-believers. I quote it often to non-believers. Altar calls, right? Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He's knocking. If you'll open up, he'll come in. But he's saying to the church, I'm knocking. On the outside, looking in. And I want you guys to open up your lives and let me in. You're lukewarm. This is the same group of people, I believe, that James is writing to. And then he says to the overcomers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down by the right hand of my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Back to the book of James. He says, lament and mourn and weep in verse 9. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Mourn over your sin. When you, when you crawl into bed and you're feeling guilty about something you've done, just mourn before God. Just say, God, I'm sorry. Help me. Call out to him. Find that forgiveness. And then verse 10, he repeats something he said in verse 6. If in one text it's said twice, we ought to listen to it. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, bracketed in this section on repentance of Christians to make things right with God is humility. I could say, and believe it is, the biggest key to getting things right with God. Putting all pride aside and getting as humble as you can possibly be. You cannot be too humble. 
You can be showing us in your humility. And that's a false humility. You can walk around telling everybody how miserably low you are. That's a false humility. But really humbling yourself. Really saying, God, I realize that I am nothing apart from you. I realize my whole value is in you. And I humble myself before you. Like the man that threw himself on the ground and beat his chest and said, Lord, be, be, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus responded to him and forgave him. I said, that man is forgiven, not the one who stood religiously before the altar. I've given my tithes. I pray three times a day. I do all these things. Humble yourself, fall on the ground, beat your chest and cry out to God, Lord, forgive me and God will forgive you. And if he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, then I want to be humble. We have a struggle with pride. Pride is a sin that we all deal with. There's not a person who doesn't. Moses, the Bible says, was the, the humblest man who ever lived. You know how we know? Moses told us. <laughs> now, I believe there's parts of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that weren't written by Moses. It's obvious when you read that, that someone came along and kind of clarified some things. And, and I think that that was written by someone else. But it is funny that the books that are accredited to Moses are the ones that tell us that Moses is the most humble man that ever lived. I, I don't think we can be too humble. I, I don't think that we can, can humble ourselves too much before God. And if you want to be exalted, you must humble yourself. And so Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then learn to be a servant to everyone, then serve everyone. And if you want to be lifted up, then you humble yourself. If you don't want to be brought down, then you don't walk in pride. And if we can learn to do that, I think that's the, the key to everything on the top and the bottom of this, to doing all of these things. And draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The Old Testament says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you can ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. There's no more satisfying, no more fulfilling place than to be close to Jesus. Humble ourselves, find ourselves close to him. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we've taken time to look at this passage and we consider what you want from us. And Lord, we collectively mourn for our sin. Lord, we are sorry that we sin. We, we have this nature that is a sin nature and in each one of us is the flesh and sometimes when we should respond by the Spirit, we respond by the flesh. And there is this struggle that goes on in us, the Spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. But Lord, you know that. You know that we have that struggle. We're so thankful that you forgive us in the midst of that. But Lord, we pray and we, we lament, we mourn our condition. We want to give you purity and righteousness. And we want to buy that eye salve that we can put on our eyes so we can see. We want to get a white robe from you that will cover our nakedness so that we can be the men and women you want us to be. And we realize that was all done for us at the cross. And so we approach your table now that we can remember what you've done so our sins could be forgiven. 
We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.